So, uh, do you like mysteries? You like mysteries? Really? You actually like mysteries? Well, I love them on TV, right? Or a movie. They're really, really good because they're entertaining. Because there's something exciting about not knowing the answer, isn't there? There's something that just excites that in you. You know, there's always then, you know, as you're finding these sorts of mysteries out, there's the epic car chase, there's the fight scenes, there's the suspenseful moments where you wonder how the hero is going to escape or how on earth they're going to solve the mysteries. But in real life, I don't really like mysteries. We moved into our new house this week and so it is full of boxes and they're full of like little cardboard mysteries. So you, you sort of you open it up and like, oh, where is that thing that I need right now? Oh, I can't remember which box I put that in or, or it's all... Oh, Wonder what's in this box as you open it up if it's not labelled. We did, we tried to label them. How do we all put it away and live like normal people? That's going to be a mystery. A, a really silly example is I have this little tub of Carmex lip balm and my lips were so dry early this week, you know, in and out, outside, inside, all that sort of stuff, carding boxes left, right and centre. And do you think for the life of me I could find where my lip balm was? You know, I only have the one. And so, uh, you know, we were searching like all the stuff that was near my, because it was on my bedside table in the old house. I was like, okay, where'd that go? You know, so you find all the box stuff that's similar to that. No, it's not in that one. Well, maybe it was in this one. So then you find all the stuff that's, you know, with that. And no, it's not there. I ended up just buying a new one. Like, you know, it was just like, it got too far down, down the, down the path. And after a few days, I'm like, nah, it's gone. So, uh, that's all right. We'll, we'll get there. Or, or like, you know, I was trying to find these little, little um, nails that go in my little nail gun so I can help fix stuff from the wall. Do you think I could find them? I searched through every box where I thought there was twice. Over. No, still going. I don't like those sorts of mysteries. Not at all. But imagine that you had been informed that a mystery had existed for your entire life, for generations and generations. Your whole life you'd been brought up with a worldview that was centred on a mystery. How frustrating would that be? I mean, just think of a lip balm or some nails, and, and I'm so frustrated. Imagine if your whole life and your worldview was all centered around a mystery. It would be difficult, you know, to, to just continue with this, this massive mystery hanging over your head. So if you have similar frustrations about mysteries like I do with my lip balm, imagine what it's like growing up Jewish. Because that's pretty much the Jewish religion, particularly in the first century, was all centered around the mystery of Messiah. Who is Messiah? When is he going to come? And we know that they, they sort of missed it. They missed Jesus. They missed the mystery. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that as a minister, God has given him the responsibility to reveal the mystery. That's what he has been given, the responsibility to reveal the mystery. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 24. We're going to look at the mystery revealed. So we're, we're pretty much there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the world of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. So Paul tells us here that he rejoices in suffering for the church and he is filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
Now, if you're, you know, know your scriptures well or even know God, you'd be going, hold on, that sounds like heresy, Paul. There is nothing lacking in Christ's affliction, nothing at all. And that's true, because at first glance it does sound heretical, but what Paul is what is not implying is a deficiency in Christ's atoning work on his death and sacrifice on the cross, because that would contradict the central message of the whole letter of Colossians and the rest of Scripture as well. Christ's sufferings are, in fact, sufficient, and nothing of our own can be added to, to secure our salvation. But what is lacking here what paul's referring to as lacking was the future suffering of all who like paul will experience great affliction for the sake of the gospel paul suffers as he proclaims the gospel and he declares that the basis of forgiveness of sins is christ once and for all suffering and sacrifice this is what he says he is commissioned to do to present the word of god in its fullness and so there's no heresy in paul's writing He's talking about the suffering that we experience as people who are believers in the gospel. And so the word in its fullness has been a mystery though. There's this mystery that exists. And it's been a mystery as it says here for ages and generations. How long is ages and generations? It's a long time, right? But now that mystery has been disclosed and and, and Paul says it's been revealed. So what is the mystery? Well, if this were a TV show, now's where we cut to the ad break. But it's not, so uh, we're going to keep going. Verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Did you hear that? The mystery. What is the mystery? Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amazing. God has chosen to reveal the mystery to us. That mystery is Christ in us. This mystery is speaking of God's unfolding plan for the world and and above all, his plan of redemption through the Messiah. Although elements of it were already known through the prophets, key elements of it were hidden through the ages and generations and so were a mystery which could only be known and understood when they were revealed by God. This language occurs often in the book of Daniel. After God reveals to Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar's dream foretold four successive kingdoms culminating in the kingdom of God, Daniel tells the king, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in later days. That's from Daniel 2.28. It says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. At the heart of that mystery that God is now revealing through Paul is the amazing hallmark of the new covenant. Christ in you the hope of glory. God himself, in the person of Christ, will be directly and personally present in the lives of his people and his presence assures us of a future life with him when he returns. Moreover, Christ does not reside only in believing Jews, but also in believing Gentiles. And so there is one unified people of God, and that's all of us. From these verses, we find out some great information from Paul about this mystery. The first one we find out is that this mystery is worth suffering for. Every time Paul shared the gospel, as we saw in Acts, he faced opposition. Some of the time, it was opposing thought and words. But a lot of the time, this opposition came in the form of a beating, of being stoned to death, of being flogged, being whipped. He suffered for the mystery because it was worth suffering for. 
He suffered for the hope of the gospel because it was worth suffering for. And as we just read a moment ago, Paul rejoiced in his suffering for the sake of the church because of his commission to bring the hope of the gospel. I'm not sure that there's many people that can say, I rejoice in suffering. Most of us whinge in suffering, but Paul rejoices. Mystery is worth working for. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, chapter 2, verse 3. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So did you hear that? For this mystery, the hope of the gospel, Paul strenuously contends with all energy. He works hard. He struggles. These words are not limp words. These are words of power, of strength, of hard work. And you know what? Serving Christ, being obedient to the commission he has given us is hard work. It is not a holiday. It is not an easy life. In fact, following Jesus in faith and obedience is a hard thing to do. Wide is the path to destruction. Narrow is the path to glory. It's something that we have to work hard at. And the reason we have to work hard at it is because our default position is selfishness. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do this because it makes me feel good. I'm going to enjoy my life and, and do what I want to do because I want to do it. That is our default position, selfishness. But what Paul teaches us here is that following Jesus is hard work. It's not easy, but it is worth it. Paul ministers so that every person will be complete in Christ and will see that all wisdom and knowledge are in him. He struggles with all his energy to help believers grow and mature in Christ. He insists that Christ is God's mystery. All understanding is found in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so Paul emphasizes that Christ is the ultimate storehouse of divine wisdom and spiritual knowledge. The mystery is worth working for. The hope of the gospel is worth working for. And this mystery is worth training for. Just grab my water and then we can read. It's from Colossians chapter 128. And chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching, teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are, and how firm your faith is in Christ. I recently went along to the opening of a rebranded CrossFit gym. It was interesting to see all the different uh, equipment and apparatus that was able to be used to help train these athletes and whatever they do. I, I wouldn't seem to be able to just walk up and use this sort of stuff because, first of all, it looked like just, I don't know, foreign bits of metal and bars and ropes and I don't know, I don't use that stuff. And so if I was to use it, I would need help and probably a defibrillator, but I'd need help. I need some guidance and, and you know someone to teach me and instruct me so that I could exercise well 
if I could be bothered. And, and get the best out of my time there to train my body well and, and not do any damage. That's, that's an important thing too when, when exercising is you don't hurt yourself. You know, I have this motto, don't play sport, don't get hurt. Because it seems when I do play sport, I usually do get hurt. So there we go. But for Paul, our spiritual life and faith is also something that needs training. I mean, if you look at these athletes, these CrossFit athletes are some of the fittest athletes in the world. They train hard to get that sort of result. Well, Paul, he says, we've got to train hard too. It was not enough for Paul to see people make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as important as this is. Full perfection will only be attained when Christ returns and we as believers are fully transformed. Until that time, the maturity Christians are to seek stands in contrast with the immaturity of infancy. One thing that you do as you grow is you learn. If you think of a child, every single day they are learning, learning, learning. There's no difference for us as Christians. We're supposed to be maturing in Christ, learning, growing, training. Paul paid great attention to instructing believers to care deeply about teaching and sound doctrine and to see believers grow in maturity in Christ. Immature people are often easily led astray because they've not developed the capacity to make correct decisions or to access all the information that that should be available and to to then make the best decision and, and to make the best call, to have the best judgment, best discernment or how to apply even that is that wisdom. And Paul warns the Colossians about the direct and dangerous threat in their midst because they would need to grow in maturity in Christ in order to stand against false teaching. And you know what? The threat for this church in Colossae was actually an internal threat. There were people inside the church who were teaching false doctrine. And so what these teachers were saying to many would sound reasonable and even persuasive, but they were not speaking the truth. And so Paul instructs them to guard themselves. And the way to know the difference between the truth and, and, and the false teaching, to mature in ability to stand firm under a threat like that, it was to train, to actually intentionally invest energy and effort into developing and knowing more about Christ and his sound, sound doctrine. And so to express the stability that Paul wants to see continue in the Colossian church, he employs two military metaphors. The first one is good order and and firmness. And so the Colossians should, should be like troops drawn up in battle formation, standing firm like soldiers resisting the enemy. And to do that, it takes training. An army is not effective if they haven't done any training. The mystery is worth training for. The hope of the gospel is worth training for. Then in verse 6, we have this lovely word, therefore, or as the NIV translates it, so then. So because Christ is in us, because we have the hope of glory, what are we supposed to do with that? Therefore, walk in Christ, our hope of glory. So then, or therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, or as the ESV translates that, continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthen in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the day lives in bodily form and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. 
your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Good teaching and correct doctrine are important for walking in Christ, continuing to live our lives in Christ. And so what does Paul commend for us and teach us here? Well, he says that we're made alive in Christ. Paul asks us to continue to live our lives in Christ, to walk in him. Let Christ guide our steps and direct our paths. Have a relationship with Jesus that reflects our very life. And this in Christ element is central to Paul's teaching here in Colossians. And so in just these few verses, we actually see that the fullness of God is in Christ. We have been filled in Christ. We have been circumcised in Christ. We've been buried in baptism in Christ. We've been raised up in Christ and we are triumphant in Christ. It's all about Jesus, eh? So let's explore what this means a little bit more closely as we go back to verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthening the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul calls the Colossians back to the foundational teaching passed on to them by Epaphras when they first became Christians. At the heart of this is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul uses the images of a tree and a building to remind them of their firm foundation in what they have already been taught. They are rooted and built up in Christ. Then the implication is why would they now give hearing to any other teaching? They have the truth. Continue in that. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So the false teachers in Colossae posed a very real threat to the church. And the Greek word used here for philosophy, it suggests that the ringleaders of the faction actually called their teaching the philosophy. And the term philosophy in the ancient world um, was, was a much more broadly used term than it is today. Because even a magician could be called a philosopher. We would sort of laugh at that today. But that's, that was the world back then. And Paul's not making a blanket condemnation of the traditional Greek philosophical schools. His remarks are focused on the particular factional teaching being disseminated at Colossae. He makes the incisive claim that this teaching is not only empty deceit, but that it has been inspired by elemental spirits of, the, of this world. And what are those elemental spirits of this world he's referring to? Well, demons. The fundamental problem with this philosophy is that it is not in accord with Jesus Christ and the gospel proclaimed by him and the apostles. He then sets out about reminding them again of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Christ is the visible expression of God. In his incarnation now and his glorification, Jesus is God in the flesh. Verse 10, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness, and he is the head over every power and authority. Did you miss that? Because that's an actual, that is a very remarkable statement. In Christ you have been brought to 
fullness. I have an illustration for you today. That is a jug of full of golf balls. I can't fit another golf ball without going over the top, right? It is full. Agree? It is full, right? Is it full? Well, I can still fit more in, right? I can fill it up with even more. Imagine that's all going down nicely and filling right up to the to the bottom around all the golf balls and, you know, it's looking lovely, okay? So that's full, right? Okay, imagine that's full of sand, okay? It's full, yep, all right. Are you sure? It's full. I'm making a mess, that's great. But just, my illustration is we sometimes think we're full of Christ. We think we are full, right? We, we think that what Christ has given us is golf balls, but then we, we miss the sand. And so we miss then also the water, you know, the fullness of Christ, there's nothing missing from that in us, right? Because we read earlier, Christ is in us, the hope of glory. The fullness of God dwells in Christ and Christ dwells where? In us. And so this statement is remarkable. You have been brought to fullness. There is nothing missing. We have the fullness of Christ in us. The fullness of God, the deity dwells in Christ who dwells in us. We have fullness. Paul says you've been brought to fullness. Not just golf balls, not just the balls in the sand, but fullness. No room left for anything else. And we see what fullness means. Paul affirms that believers share in Christ's power and authority over every rule and authority by virtue of their union with him. This is the main theme of Colossians. The divine fullness is in Christ and believers are filled in him. And so we have everything we need in Christ. We do not need anything else. We do not need anything from our world. We do not need anything that the media tells us that we need. We have the fullness in Christ. Our world says you need more. We say we have it all. It's in Christ. The term head is clearly used here with a sense of authority over. He is the head of over every power and authority. You know what? That would have been very encouraging for the people in the Colossian church because they continue to live in fear of the demonic realm. And so Paul has said here, Christ is supreme over all. He is the head over every power and authority. Nothing can usurp the authority of Jesus Christ and he is in you. His authority is in you. You have authority. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Paul here uses circumcision metaphorically for a spiritual action which he describes as putting off the body of the flesh. Believers no longer live in this fear of the flesh and its influence, but have been transferred to the kingdom of Christ and live through and in him and his lordship. In this circumcision performed by Christ, Christians have been removed from their solidarity with Adam and his sin and are now in solidarity with Christ and his righteousness and can live for him. Sin has no part in our lives. It's a struggle we have though, isn't it? But when God looks at us, he looks at the righteousness of Christ because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins in this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. In the second metaphor drawn from Christ's work on the cross, Paul says that the Christian rite of baptism represents an identification with Christ in his death along with an identification with Christ in his resurrection. 
dying and rising with Christ signifies death to the power of sin and Satan, plus empowerment to live the new life that Jesus calls believers to live in imitation of him as forgiven people. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In the Greco-Roman world, the record of debt was a written note of indebtedness. And Paul uses this as a word picture to characterize each person's indebtedness to God because of sin. God himself has mercifully resolved this problem for all who put their faith in Jesus by taking this note and nailing it to the cross where Jesus paid the debt. And so this image comes from the notice fastened to a cross by Roman authorities declaring the crime for which the criminal was being executed. Remember that sign on the cross of Christ. This is the record of indebtedness that Christ has paid for on our behalf. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross of Christ marked the decisive defeat of the demonic powers. See, on the cross, they were stripped of their power to accuse Christians before God. Nevertheless, these demons continue to exist and to exercise power to incite evil. And so we must, unfortunately, as Christians, still struggle with them. The cross, however, publicly reveals the failure of the demonic powers to thwart God's plan of salvation through the cross. The word image Paul uses here of triumphing over them is of a triumphal Roman military procession. The defeated king, with all of his surviving warriors and the spoils of war, were paraded through the streets of Rome as they'd been conquered by Rome. And so it was a public spectacle for all to see the triumphal procession of the winning team, as you you might suggest. Just like when Geelong sang their song on Friday night, the triumph of the winning team. So how does the full explanation of the mystery change our life? How does Christ in us, the hope of glory, impact our day-to-day lives? How does this wonderful teaching and and the explanation that Paul gives help shape our lives today? Because we haven't grown up in a world of mystery. We've always had the gospel. It's always been explainable to us. It's always been there for us. Whether we responded to it in faith and repentance or not, it's always been there. And we haven't been struggling under, under factional teaching rifts of false doctrine or philosophy so what can we take away from this passage today for us for now well i want to look at at three actions that paul asks of believers in chapter two he gives us three things to walk in christ to abound in thanksgiving and to guard against false teaching and i'm going to go from bottom up just for difference you know and it's not rocket science is it they're pretty simple guard against false teaching false teaching is pretty easy to identify if you know your bible well and if you don't I've been to Bible college, so I've got a Bachelor of Theology. But you know, I'm sure there's people in here that know the Scriptures probably even better than I do. You don't need a Bachelor to know the Bible well. You've got a copy. You can read it. You can know it. And you can be really up there with what it says. And so you can know God's heart. Everyone can be familiar with the Scriptures. You just have to read them often. You can even have someone else read the Bible to you through an app on your phone if you want. The more familiar you are with the Bible, the more you know God's heart and his character and his will, and the easier it is to spot a fake. I googled this this week because I'd heard it before and I wanted to know if it was true, but it it, it apparently is true. Banks don't train their employees to spot fake notes by showing them fake notes. 
They train them to spot fakes by becoming so familiar with the real ones that they know instantly when there is a fake. And that's a bit like what we can do when we know the scriptures. When we're familiar with the real thing, it's easier to spot a fake. So stay familiar with God through his word. What about abounding in thanksgiving? I love this. Gratitude is the best attitude. There we go. It's a good one, isn't it? Gratitude is the best attitude. Express thanks to those around you. Thank the person serving you at the shop. Thank your friends and family members for the things they do for you. Of course they know you're thankful, but it's important to express it to abound in thanksgiving. You know, take a moment to encourage someone by thanking them for what they are doing. It's pretty easy to abound in thanksgiving, to, to, to express gratitude for the blessings that we receive from so many different ways. And that's a good one. I like that. Gratitude is the best attitude. And finally is walk in Christ. I like the, the metaphor of walking in Christ because walking is something that is boring. Really? No one actually enjoys walking. What? There are crazy people who enjoy walking? It's so mundane. It's something that's so common and regular. It's an ordinary thing for most of us to do. It's a bit like blinking. Who enjoys blinking? Right? It just happens. You know, you don't have a choice because you walk. Just like you don't have a choice to blink, it happens, right? And, and that's what walking in Christ should be like. Not the boring bit, but get, stay with me. It's a natural part of who we are as Christians. As believers, to walk in Christ is supposed to be ordinary. It's supposed to be common and regular. It isn't anything special. It is our regular, normal, day-to-day life. Being aware of God's presence and the reality that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. That means that wherever we go, we take Christ with us because he's in us. When we're at work, Christ is in us. When we're out shopping, Christ is in us. When we're yelling at the kids, Christ is in us. When we go for a walk, Christ is in us. Just think about that. In everything you think, do and say, Christ is in us. So walk in him. Let that reality be something that encourages and builds us up. Let that be a reminder that whatever we are doing, Christ is right there too. So walk in him with boldness and security and bring the hope that is found in Christ with you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Again, today we've been inspired by what you have written to us through the Apostle Paul and his letter to the church in Colossians, in Colossae. Lord, we thank you that indeed you are in us. In everything we do, you are right there in us. Lord, may that be just an exciting thing for us to live in the reality and walk in. Lord, wherever we are, we take you there. Wherever we go, we take you there. In our relationships, in our conversations, in our work, in our study, in all of what we do and who we are, we take you there. And so, Lord, may you encourage us with this to be just an absolute blessing for us. May people look at us and just see that sense of peace and calm that comes from the calm assurance that we all things are in your hand and in your control. Lord, may you bless us with constant reminders of that reality so that, Lord, we would not be led astray, that, Lord, we would train hard, that, Lord, we would endure suffering, that, Lord, we would be people who serve you well, who honour you, at all times, in everything that we think, do and say, Lord, because you are in us. 
May we walk in that reality as an encouragement. Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.